C.S. Lewis said that there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of every one of us, and he was just building on thoughts of Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher who thought an awful lot about God. The human race is as religious as it has ever been. And if you happen to know some atheists or agnostics, there's a good chance that they are pursuing a humanistic religion of sorts, whether it be science or political theory or even social justice, none of which are bad, but can become bad if they replace the real thing. And we do it in all kinds of ways, sports, shopping, television, whatever. We do anything we can to fill up the emptiness in our lives. In addition to possessing that emptiness that can only be filled by God, I think all men and women want to belong. Now look, you may have some misanthropes in your neighborhood. You know what a misanthrope is? It's someone who hates humankind. I mean, just hater of humanity, you know. Hello, Mr. Sanger. It's Scrooge, you know. But every, I'm, I'm going to guess it almost all people who are like that had experiences that have caused them to do everything they can to protect against being hurt any more than they are. Most of the time it was pain that came early in life because we always, we just all want to belong. You know how important it is for babies to be touched and cuddled and cared for and what a dramatic difference it makes in one's life if you're not cuddled and cared for like that at a baby. We all want to belong because we're designed to belong to a family. If this is your first time at Grace, you can see on the screen that this message is focused on family, uh, on a place in the family. In fact, this is really a series. It's not just a message. It's a series that's going to last most likely into the summer. I used to um, be concerned about finishing up before the end of spring, especially when there are a lot of students here. You know, you just want to wrap it up before they, their semester is over. But, but so many people listen online now, I don't feel as compelled to, to hurry up when there's so much to say. And there is so much to say about marriages, about parenting, about singleness, uh, about uh, giving and about missions and just all of the, the different things that we do as a family together, the way that God has designed us. So, a lot more to be said about all of this in family. Uh, in this series, the family we're talking about is not only God's large covenant family that consists of all followers of Jesus, but more specifically to the family known as Grace Community Church. Look, if you, if you read in Scripture, you're going to see over and over that these letters that the Apostle Paul and uh, the Apostle Peter and John, different ones they wrote, were written to specific churches. Very often, those letters were designed to be read at this church and then send it on around. It was sort of a circular letter that was intended to get to all the churches in the area, but it was written to, written to a specific group of people. So when we read passages about forgiving one another and serving one another, while it's quite appropriate that we apply these principles at, at the job and in the neighborhood and at the family reunion, God help us all, um, it, it, the specific intent is for us to apply these 
principles and these commands within the context of the body in which God has placed us. For us, which would mean for us, Grace Community Church. Our earthly families are often known for particular characteristics, aren't they? I hear all the time, oh, you're, you're a tally. Your, your family was in the tobacco business. That's right, they were in the tobacco business. Um, <clears throat> other families are known, the Johnsons are known for hard work. Or the Smiths are known for making money. And the Kingstons are known for making a dollar stretch. And then uh, uh, the, the Olsons are funny people. I mean, they're almost all funny. Every one of them knows how to tell a joke. Well, the same is true for churches. I mean, some churches are known for their commitment to the truth. Others are known for their commitment to missions. <coughs> some churches are very loving and friendly, and others focus on teaching. Some churches uh, are known for community service, and this church over here is known for outreach, taking Jesus, sharing Jesus far and wide. All of these different aspects of church life are encompassed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is why we ought to be strive to be a gospel saturated family. Now you may be tempted to think the gospel. I I think I get that. Resist that temptation. Let me encourage you to resist the temptation to think, "Oh boy, we're going to talk about the gospel again." The gospel envelops all of the Christian life. It's a mindset that directs the way we live as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just the plan of salvation. If that's all it were, then the gospel would hold a very small, albeit a a significant role in our lives or place in our lives. But the gospel goes so far beyond encountering God at salvation. It shows us where we've come from, how we're related to God, how this world works, how God works with us in this world, how we are to live as foreigners in a strange land where we're heading. Studying the Bible with the intention of finding ways to improve yourself in a world in which you are very much at home is not a gospel-centered approach to scriptures. One Sunday in this series, I hadn't got it all lined up exactly like we want to go. Next two or three weeks are lined up. But one Sunday we're going to just talk about preaching and, and, and the types of sermons that are preached here and why it's important to look at Scripture this way, and, and, and while this way is okay for a time, but you've got to get back to staying with a word. What does the word say? Um, <clears throat> a lot of people say, and you'll hear this again from me, a lot of people say, you've got to give me something on Sunday that's going to help me on Monday. That's really not the way to look at the word. Now, don't just leave it right there. I'm going to come back and explain that when we talk about what goes into a sermon and what a sermon is trying to accomplish on Sunday morning. But just think about this again. Study on the Bible with the intention of finding ways to improve yourself in a world in which you are very much at home is not a gospel-centered approach to Scripture. Is this our home? No. But we feel like it is, don't we? And the more we focus on the world and the less we focus on God, the more this is our home. But if we're true followers of Jesus, it's not our place. 
Now look, we ought to be able to live in this world in such a way that people take notice. And we've got to be able to communicate. We can't isolate ourselves from all of society. But I promise you this. If you live a life that God calls you to live as a as a gospel-believing follower of Jesus Christ, there's no way you get by without people thinking you're a fanatic. I mean, you're... I mean, I look around and I see a number of just absolute nuts in here. Some of it's because of gospel-centered living. Others, you know, I'm not saying. Just kidding. I've, I've got a mirror up here, too, you don't know about. But see, here's the thing. Here's, you look at Scripture, and if you wear glasses like I do, you can get a lot of it. But when you put your gospel glasses on, when you begin to see the Scripture through the lens of the gospel, it clears up in ways that you never imagined possible. Even though you may know a great deal about Scripture, view it through the lens of the gospel, it comes alive. Well, that's a lot of information uh, before we even read the text, (laughs) but there's more to come. If you're making a conscious effort to see Scripture through the gospel, you're going to understand this both the introduction and the message. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of context. We're going to be reading the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians 4, but it starts back in 2 Corinthians 3. I've just been so pleased to hear that so many of you have have made a commitment to read through the Bible this year. Now, I realize what time it is. Valentine's Day, somewhere along in there, is probably a time when most people are starting to say, I'm not so sure I can do this. You know, because if you're going straight through, you're well into uh, numbers probably by now, and that's tough sledding. And even if you're um, uh, reading through the one-year Bible like I am, you're in Leviticus. And But you know, if you let me just encourage you to hang in there. Just get past this little bump, and you'll be uh, able to, to, to make it through, I'm sure. Um, if you're reading through the one-year Bible, as I am, then you've re- been reading in Exodus this past week. You read where the children of Israel made this golden calf, and they worshipped it, and Moses is up on the mountain. We talked about this in the Grace Connection class. It struck me like it never has before. What did Moses do with those stone tablets when he came down, when he saw the, the sin of the people? What did he do? <laughs> Broke them, which is one of those... Uh, great lessons that we hold this book in the highest esteem. But we don't worship the book. We worship the God of this book. Jesus, it's all, and that's a gospel-centered approach to life, is that we understand that this is all pointing to Jesus. God didn't get angry with Moses. He said, let's do it again. He appreciated Moses' heart that, that, that these people were worshiping a calf, for goodness sakes, instead of him. So 2 Corinthians 3 is pretty much a commentary on Exodus, Exodus 32 to 34. <clears throat> when Moses went back up to meet with God, <coughs> after <clears throat> he had broken the stone, the stone tablets, and he said, God, show me your glory. And the Lord said, it's too much for you. I'll walk past you. I'll hide you. You can see the backside of my presence, but you can't see all of my glory. You can't handle it in full. 
Much is made in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about Moses putting a veil over his face. Some people believed that it was keep, to keep people from being terrified by the glory of God that shone on Moses' face when he came down from speaking uh, with God. Others say it was to keep the people from realizing that the glory was fading. Either way, really, really does not matter what you think or maybe even if you say, yeah, well, both are true. Either way, Paul was making the point that the glory of Moses' ministry, which was the ministry of law, was indeed fading. But the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, ministered by the Spirit of God, the gospel of which Paul was a minister, would never fade. Those who hope in the fading glory of the law have veils over their eyes and over their hearts. But when a person turns to Jesus... The veil is removed. And then in verses 16, 17, and 18, we see that he or she begins to be shaped into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. Those are great verses, but they're fairly complex. There's a lot more to it than just saying, oh yeah, that's cool. With this morsel of context, we're going to read the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to spend most of our time in the first six verses. But think about this context as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Would you stand as the scripture is read? I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul is speaking about the gospel of the ministry. Back in chapter 3, he's saying this is for all people. Now in chapter 4, he moves to the royal we. When he says we, he's really saying I, but this applies to us. There's no way God writes this just so that Paul can say, well, here's about my ministry as an apostle. It has nothing to do with you whatsoever. You're not going to get any benefit out of this after my death, but for now it's important you know. No, there's a lot here for us. So, As we read, ask God to open your heart. Therefore, having this ministry of the gospel by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. But life in you, since we're not going to talk about this, let me just say this principle is so often the case. Death in us works life in others. And you, if, if it's all about law, if it's all about me, it's like, oh, I wish this weren't happening to me. Look, the, the, the troubles that you engage, and if you embrace those troubles right now, God is working life in someone else. It just is a principle of God's design. And it's the pattern of Jesus. It's the gospel. Since verse 13. We have the same spirit of faith. According to what is written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe. And so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised Jesus. The Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus also. And bring us with him into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, those gospel glasses that we put on also give us an eternal perspective. Lord, help us to recognize that our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in this world. It's not in things going as we want them to go. Our hope is in Jesus, and that is better than anything ever. We far prefer that to our own ways, which end in death and destruction and hell. Lord, we need you this morning. We call out to you to open our hearts. Give us understanding that we might be gospel-saturated people. A gospel-saturated family, in fact. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Just think about all that's in this chapter that points to the gospel and gospel ministry. Holiness and sanctification, truthfulness, honesty, spiritual warfare, witness, faith, God's sovereignty, sacrifice and substitution, darkness and light, grace, union with Christ, perseverance, Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection, suffering and glory, heaven, eternal perspective. It's all under the umbrella of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. So much more. Then we want to think. Let's let's think about first how the gospel works. In an earlier letter to the same church, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 15, here's the gospel, I preach this gospel to you. Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected on the third day, and a whole lot of people saw him. If you believe that, you are being saved. 
Then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he gives us this beautiful description of what Christ's death meant. God caused Jesus to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That exchange that we talked about last week. What do you do with good news? I mean, taken with 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, then we hear this good news and understand it. We are required to repent of our sins and to believe Jesus. We repent of our self-sufficiency, of our dependence upon ourselves and our pitiful attempts to reach God through our own efforts or the law and our good works. Our only hope is to acknowledge how hopeless we are and then to realize that he has done all the work for us. Receive Jesus and, and live for him for the rest of our days. Paul begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 by talking about the ministry of the gospel that God has given him. Now, you can see how deeply Paul cares for this calling, this ministry that God's given, and his understanding that he needs to call sinners to repent and believe. And Paul wants his love for the gospel ministry to spill over onto us. He wants to make it clear that he has nothing to gain by being deceptive about his gospel ministry. See, a lot of people were preaching for financial gain. A lot of people were preaching for political power in that day. Personal advantage. Thank God none of that happens today. The truth that we encounter over and over in Scripture is that all this is about God, not about us. But even at the same time, when we realize that and when we acknowledge, God, this is about you, we find in the truth of the gospel that he's all about us, that he loves us deeply enough to have sent his son to die for our sins, that the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us, which we can't even begin to approach and understand at, at the levels that it, of reality that exist. So God is deeply concerned about his covenant people. If you want to be <clears throat> certain to find misery in your life, live for yourself. Make it all about you. And I promise you, Misery will be the end result. When you live according to the law, it can't help but be about you. It has to be about you. Hey, I'm going to heaven. I ain't never killed nobody. Cheated on my wife. I ain't even cheated on my taxes. Hey, when you've given as much money to charity as I have, then come back to me and talk talk about who's going to heaven. When the gospel drives you, then you are aware that because of sin, sin that you were born with, you were hopelessly condemned by the law unless God intervenes. But as a gospel-centered believer, you recognize that there is life in Jesus. And not only that, even when you fail as a believer, you don't despair. Look, when you blow it as a believer and you say, oh, I'm so disappointed with myself. I just can't believe that I did that. I've got to do better a real fine line, isn't it? We cannot, by any means, accept our sin as like, hey, it's just the way I am. 
Well, you know how guys are. Well, women are just that way. I mean, you can't, you can't rest on anything like that. But when you are a gospel-centered, you have a gospel-centered focus, you don't despair. When you sin, you can say, God, I am exactly who you said I am. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving me. And I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. Well, preacher, you don't know. I've done that about 468 times. When, God's, when Jesus says, you're to forgive your brother seven times 70, you think he's going to hold you to a higher standard than he holds himself? Or he's going to hold, you, yes, do you think he's going to hold you to a higher standard than he's willing to do? Confess it and move on. And get some help from somebody. Be accountable to somebody. Say, help me. That's what a gospel-centered community is about. Helping each other. I've gone to preaching and lost my place. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, when you live by the law, there's a good chance you'll come to the end of your life and say, I've done all of this, and for what profit? What benefit? Whereas a gospel-centered believer might say, you know, it didn't go the way I would have liked. A lot of things just weren't the way that I wanted them to be. But, but Jesus is my hope, and he's my king, and he's done what he will. Praise his name. I am about to meet my Lord and Savior and King, where everything will be as it should be. And preaching the gospel... Since those who do not believe the gospel eventually will hate it if it's pressed to its ultimate conclusion, which is, you, Gary, I'm sorry, brother, you're not good enough to get there on your own. Gary Stevens knows that very well, that it's Jesus. His only hope is Jesus. But look... And Gary is one of the most evangelistically minded. Allison and I were talking about Gary and Barbara and how they share Christ everywhere. And some people don't want to hear it because what is it saying actually? You're not good enough. And even though you might say, none of us is good enough. I, I Believe me, I'm a hopeless sinner. What they're thinking is, no, you think you're better than I am. How dare you? I'm a far better person than most people. I'm probably a better person than you. How dare you say that to me? There's no profit in preaching a true gospel ministry. So Paul said, I want it to be as honest as it can possibly be because that's God. He's open. No hidden motives. What you see is what you get. Why is it that people wouldn't want to receive Jesus' righteousness? Well, it's very evident. I mean, either we depend on God's righteousness through Jesus or it's up to us for our salvation. And and when you talk to someone who just won't accept the truth, you might be tempted to say, you refuse to to believe the truth. You can't handle the truth, you know, something like that. But they're unable to see the truth. 
They're blind to the truth. Even when you explain the gospel in the simplest terms. And and give them all the biblical support anyone could ever possibly need. It's not as though they blinded themselves. But Satan has kept them from seeing the truth. There's a veil over their hearts and eyes. The remedy is found back in 3.16 that we looked at earlier. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Repent and believe and the scales will fall off of your eyes. There's more to it though than just making up your mind to believe. Let's read verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know what it's like when you're with someone and you say, can you see that? And they say, no, I don't see it. Or maybe, you know, you're looking at the clouds. You say, do you see that? I mean, that's like a dragon or that's like a building. That looks like, you know, my third grade teacher or something like that. You see that? I don't see that at all. Come on, you got to see that. When a person is blind, do you chide them from being unable to see? Can you not see that? Oh, that's right, you're blind. I forgot. But we forget that about those who are spiritually blind. It's, It's as plain as a nose on your face. And that's a big schnoz you got. You know, it's you gotta see that. So verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Hey, tell me, why is it that you want your favorite athlete? Why is it you want your favorite entertainer? They've just got to be a Christian because it affirms something in you, doesn't it? It's not about them believing what you believe. It's about them believing the word of God. We proclaim not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus. Hey, Bono's a believer. Don't you want to trust Christ? It's the God of the universe. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let light shine out of darkness. Does that remind you of anything? How about Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. How did light come to the universe? How? God spoke it, and it happened. Let it be their word. God's word is causative. It always accomplishes its intended effect. When God speaks, his word creates what it says. You get this? God says it, and it happens. When God speaks, his word creates what it says. God spoke, light flooded the universe. 
When Adam was created, he was brought into a perfect universe and all was well until he sinned. And when Adam sinned, he fell away from the light that God had created. He didn't fall away into the nothingness before he existed because he who has not created himself cannot end his own existence. That's a word for those who think, you know, life is so hard, I'm, I just want to end it all. You can't end it all unless you've created yourself. So Adam falls away back into the darkness of sin and he fell under God's judgment. Fortunately for Adam and Eve, God made a covering for their nakedness thought about this. Oh, I've thought about it before, I'm sure. It just comes at different times. Think about Adam and Eve when their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and that they had sinned and they had made something that was beautiful and holy, horrible and ugly. And God covered their nakedness. All indications are Jesus Christ died on the cross utterly naked. How appropriate that the judgment of God in many ways, when God judged Jesus, he's judging our nakedness, the sin that has been revealed to us, our wickedness that is revealed when everything is exposed as it is. But Adam and Eve, in their nakedness, tried to cover themselves. And God killed an animal in his mercy. And he covered them with the skin of that animal. Thereby forgiving them. Because one life was exchanged for another. When That's the gospel, by the way. When we are born, we're born into Adam's lost race race. We're we're in spiritual darkness, blinded to the truth of the gospel, (coughs) and we're able to see only when God removes the veils from our eyes and sheds the light of the glorious gospel of Christ into our hearts. When God speaks light into our darkened heart, only then will we turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. So there's some startling news in this gospel. We're incapable of finding this light on our own or even moving toward the light. How many of you in your testimony would say something like, it was, I was searching for the Lord and then I finally found him? Probably you would say that early in your walk as a believer. Because the longer you go, you look back and you say, oh, I was running from God and he reached down and Snatch me. He found me, not the other way around. We have no more hope of speaking the light of the gospel to ourselves than we had of speaking creation into existence. What have you ever spoken into existence? Anything? Probably not. If God does not send his light to us, we remain in darkness, blinded by Satan. 
One of the ways that he sends his light to us, though, is to send those who will preach the gospel to us. And preaching the gospel means a lot more than just me standing up here on Sunday morning. And as Isaiah Tana said so many years ago, Pastor Brad doesn't work, but one day, honey, Pastor Brad works hard. How hard is it to speak into a microphone and tell people what to do? That's what he said when he's about six years old. That's Isaiah Tana. That's not, that's not the preaching we're talking about. The preaching extends far, but whenever you're sharing the gospel, you are preaching the gospel to others. And Romans 10 tells us people can't believe if they don't hear. They can't hear if there's not a preacher, and they can't preach if they're not sent. See, all of that's part of the gospel. But then he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I've talked about how 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 go together. But if you fail to include chapter 5 in this study, you're going to miss one of the great applications. Because of the fear of the Lord, verse 11, we persuade others. Verse 20 of chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, be reconciled to God. That's our calling, the ministry of the gospel, to take it to people and say, please be reconciled to God. Well, I'm just doing the best. No, no, that's not it. Our best is not good enough. But there's good news. There's one who was good enough. And he died for you and he stands in your stead if you will receive it, if you will believe it. God's sovereignty in our election and salvation is one of those doctrines that just gives people a great deal of trouble, a lot of people. Hey, I'm grateful to be saved, but it's just not fair if nobody else has a choice. I mean, come on. I chose. It certainly seemed that way, didn't it? And we must approach God that way, which is why we implore others to be reconciled to God and why we said, oh God, I choose you. <clears throat> but if darkness remains in our lives until he shines the light of the gospel in our hearts, well, it's his doing, isn't it? And this is part of the gospel. It's all his doing, your spiritual growth, your sanctification. But I have to do this, this. Yes, you'll want to do that. That's all gospel. It's your, it's because, why? Because it's about him. It's not about me. And I need to find out as much as I can. But he's the one who will do the work in us. Now, a little perspective may be helpful. And, and if I've given this analogy recently, I think I may have given it to the Grace Connection class last go-round. But if I gave it here, just say, hmm, it's worse than we thought. I, I imagine many of you yesterday being Valentine's ate at Ruth's Chris or Angus Barn. Is that right? How many of you ate at Ruth's Chris? Or Ang- um, <clears throat> just imagine that you are going to eat at the nicest restaurant, not in Raleigh, but in New York. New York City. You know, you're going to the city for a, for a, you fly up there, taxi takes you, you're going to spend the night there, maybe see a Broadway play, but this meal is going to cost more than everything else combined because it is the most ridiculously expensive but incredibly divine food imaginable. See how we misuse those terms, divine. I mean, you save for this meal a long time and you plan to enjoy it, but this is going to set you back. Now, imagine after the, the, the waiter has come and they brought the water and the pitcher of water and everything. You're studying the menu and the wife is saying, whoo, 
oh, look at that. You know, she's looking on the left side of the menu. The husband's looking at the right side. And he's saying, hmm, look at that. You know, and it's good. But you say, like, I'm putting all of that aside. This is going to be good. The waiter then comes to you and he says, I have some news for you that I think you're going to find to be good news. The owner of this restaurant has chosen for the participants in the restaurant or for, the, for our, 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 our customers at, at this particular table tonight to have a free meal. You order the most expensive wine, the most expensive items on our menu. This meal is completely a gift to you. Now, you're going to say, what? <laughs> what? Are you? This seems too good to be true. Really? Is this for real? Why would the owner do that? And the waiter says, oh, every so often, just out of the goodness of his heart, he does that. And he's chosen you to be the recipient of this free meal. It's his grace, his kindness to you. So let me just, as I say that, can you just feel the anger starting to burn within you? Saying, what about these other tables in this restaurant? How is it fair that I get a free meal and they don't even get a choice in this matter? I mean, can I let it? No, it's this table. I imagine that you're going to enjoy this meal more than any you've ever had in your life. Especially when they say, oh, oh, by the way, here's money for the hotel, for the Broadway play, for the air, airline tickets. It's all on the owner. You're going to enjoy it more than anything you've ever done in your life. You'll be forever grateful that the owner of the restaurant chose your table as an expression of his lavish grace. Furthermore, you're going to tell everyone about the kindness of this man or this woman. As far as a restaurant is concerned. <laughs> like all analogies, this one breaks down, but you get the point, don't you? When our eyes are open to the gospel, it changes everything. Mention the truth of verse 5, but it's one of those verses that we really haven't spent a lot of time on. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul it's going to say in a few minutes, we'll read it. This is just a, a momentary affliction, a light affliction. You go to 2 Corinthians 11 and see about all that he had suffered for the gospel. And you'll realize it was profound from our way of understanding. But Paul is essentially saying, look, it's about Jesus. It's not what I can gain. It's not, if, if, it's, it's, if it's up for that, I'm going to preach something else because this life is hard. It's painful. The gospel revolves around Jesus, not us. Everything in life becomes about him. And the more the gospel penetrates our hearts, the more grateful we are that God has made a way for us in our sin to be united for Jesus. And we desperately want other people to believe the same thing that we believe and to, be, and to benefit the way we do. And that's why we implore people to turn to Jesus. When our minds are saturated with the gospel, when the gospel is at the center of our covenant community, Jesus is exalted. And not only will we, but those in our community will reap eternal benefits. It won't be easy. 
Paul's life was anything but easy. Not only will we suffer at the hands of those who hate the gospel, but look, the chief hater of the gospel is Satan. And he blinds the eyes of those lest they believe. And if you're going to have anything to do with sharing the good news of Jesus, he's after you. Who's to say that Lisa Pelton is not the victim of Satan wanting to keep the gospel down? It's not easy, this gospel life. It's so helpful when we recognize it's about Jesus. Once again, gospel perspective will bring joy in our lives when the world expects complaint. Let's close our time as Paul closed this section, verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. A lot of you feel that way, don't you? Your outer self just wasting away. Inner self, though, is being renewed. And you know what? That's one of the beautiful things about a gospel-saturated life and a gospel-saturated community. We are continually, consistently renewed, built up, no matter what's going on on the outside. Verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When I lived in Avery County um, at the camp, TBR, we would go over occasionally to Ben Lippin in uh, Asheville. Ted McKinney went to school at Ben Lippin in Asheville. The school has moved to Columbia, South Carolina now, but they had this conference center and had some great speakers. We, I, I heard Warren Wiersbe and Vance Havner, uh, John MacArthur, all there. Vance Havner, did anybody have the privilege? I, but Jim Acock, you did. Joy, did you hear Vance Havner? He was an old country preacher with a really bright mind from Greensboro, North Carolina. But, you know, he would say things like, did you ever go to the church on Sunday morning looking for a good steak dinner and it seemed like all you got was cool whip? You know, and he would just say that kind of stuff all the time. And he had really provocative ways of speaking, uh, ways of making you think, you know, and so. But, but once, uh, we were on the, the mailing list because, you know, we would go over there and got signed up. And they sent us a letter one time. It had a, a fire. Uh, one of the, the cafeteria had burned down. And so someone from the Asheville Citizen Times, that bastion of conservatism, the Asheville Citizen Times, um, <clears throat> uh, had called the people over at Ben Lippin, and the guy was saying, you know, and they said, well, how are you handling this? I mean, I know this is a setback. He said, you know, we're, we're not looking at the things that, that we look, that we see every day. We're looking at the things that are eternal. The things that we see are passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And the, and the reporter said, wow, that's great. Can I quote you on that? <laughs> um, so, well, it's already been quoted about 2,000 years ago. But think about it. What's the worst thing that's happened to you in the last year? There's a lot of, there are a lot of awful things that have happened to you in the last year. You know what? 
This is passing away. One of the things we're going to talk about, I want to say it right now, because circumstances may change. We don't talk about it much. We need to talk about what it means to die in a gospel community. I'll spend the whole Sunday on that. So when things change, remember, I've said this ahead of time. Right now, <clears throat> nobody's on death's door that I know of. I feel like I am. Some of you look like you are. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say. True, but terrible. <laughs> but we got to talk about that. We don't talk about it like we used to. Death used to be a part of every family, right? Out of nine, ten children, every family had two that were lost. My dad, two siblings lost when they were they were young. Um, and, and there's something about dying a gospel-centered death, no matter how old we are. When we recognize that this world is passing away, and it's not, it is not. It is a pathetic analogy to say it's like one eyedropper drop of water into the ocean. It doesn't compare. And it's all going to be good all the time, always, forever. It's going to be perfect. And when you're gospel-centered, you think about those things. You think about what's ahead. You think about Him. Let's pray. Jesus... There's so much about the gospel that is so beautiful. At least on the side of belief, it's beautiful. On the other side, Lord, the harsh reality that those who reject Jesus will be rejected for eternity. And when we think of hell, we think about the flames. It's really the darkness. The darkness without Jesus. That is so terrifying. Thank you for bringing us into the light. Because Jesus lived a life that we couldn't. And died a death that we deserved, but we were incapable of dying for ourselves or for anybody else so that life might come to us. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, for those who may have walked in here saying, I just don't know what it's all about. Help them to cry out to you. Ask, oh Lord, remove the veil from my heart and my eyes. And when the Lord removes that veil, you'll see Jesus. You'll repent of your sin. Your sin, not your sins, your sin. You'll repent of your condition before God and say, Lord, I have no hope apart from you. And when you look up, you'll see Jesus who died for you. He offers you life. For those of you who have known that for a long time, that is your life. Jesus' death is your life and in the ways that we live out the gospel. 
Sometimes death comes to us, but life is built into others. Lord, none of us anticipates gladly, says bring it on, not those of us within, with any perspective at all. It's not that we, that we long for troubles, but when they come, we can rejoice that we have a Savior. Eternal life is ours. Thank you, Father, for your gospel. Burn it into our hearts. Make us like you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory. Would you stand together, please, and let's sing that again to the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Yesterday, my wife was gracious enough to uh, grant me the opportunity to uh, take a little trip with my brother, even on Valentine's Day. And uh, we went snow skiing. Um, We were driving up the mountain and talking and I was so worried that I was going to miss my, uh, my turn to head up to the resort um, that I, I got a little nervous that I'd missed it, and I kept on driving. And I finally got there, and there it was, this giant sign, and I commented to my brother. I said, I wonder how many people have missed that giant sign and driven all the way up the mountain. Um, that sign, much like the gospel that has been presented here today, um, that Brad preaches to us every Sunday is the Word of God. It is the gospel truth that we need to be rescued, and the only hope of that rescue is the grace provided to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's beneficial and edifying to us as believers and to non-believers. And so if you've found yourself driving up the mountain and thinking that you've missed your son, you have not. It has been presented to you today, and I hope that uh, you will receive it. Um, now for the benediction, which comes to us at the end of Paul's letter, second letter to the church at Corinth. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Go in love, go in peace, go in faithfulness. Have a wonderful week.